Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. It is an honor, an absolute treat to welcome back in the studio, well, our virtual Zoom studio, um, one of my favorite thought leaders in childhood development in the whole wide world. She is a lover of nature. She's an advocate for children spending more time in nature and she's just the nicest person to talk to. Um, and the feedback from our last podcast together was brilliant. Um, she's the founder of Scotland's first nature kindergarten. Um, she leads a debate on outdoor play and learning, author of many books on learning through nature, founder of the International Association for Nature Pedagogy. And today we are going to talk about the values of the unseen in nature, um, including children in playground design, which obviously that's right up my alley, and honouring children's time through freedom. So welcome back to our Zoom call and play it forward. The amazing Dr. Claire Warden. Hey, good to see you. <laughs> yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for asking me back. Looking forward to having a chat. Oh, it's so easy. I, like time and time again, I've listened to so many podcasts with you and it's the same feedback. People go, I could have just talked to you for like a day. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, as always, we start off the podcast with where you played as a child, but We've run that one thin. You're the first guest we've ever had on twice, so we had to reshuffle. Oh, excellent. Um, a trendsetter, a groundbreaker, maverick as always. Um, so I'll change <laughs> it up a bit. Where do you like to play as an adult? Well, I live in kind of the middle of a field, and um, there's an area that, that's just at the transect. It's like a boundary space between a big old pine forest um, and then the bottom part of that is like a deciduous open forest and there's a little babbling brook. It sounds like idyllic and it kind of is um, with little sloping areas. And that's almost the place that I would say is one of my favorite places because it's just gentle. And for some reason, it's a haven in the middle of quite a harsh forest, especially the, the coniferous forest. You come out of this very dark environment into this little open glade with this little brook and um, yeah and then head off into a more dappled light on the far side of the bridge. Um, so that's where I like to go. Um, and in terms of playing in that space, I think it's about that, you know, just that sense of joyfulness that I have in my heart when I get to it. So although I might not leap from tree to tree, there's an absolute sense of freedom and joy when I go to that zone. It's a funny question to ask adults, actually. It's like, where do you play? And then you get that blank look and they're like, what do you mean? And um, we got to reframe it. It's like, oh, do you have a hobby? And they go, oh, yeah, I got a hobby. So is that play? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think you could set the record for the busiest person in nature play, for sure, with the amount of that you've got on, the research you're involved with, the study you're involved with. Um, what's your why in keeping busy, so determined on your on your goals and um, impacting as many children as possible? Well, I think you've probably actually answered the question there by saying <laughs> impacting as many children as possible. So thank you. Um, I think for me, it's um, 
I've always been a, a quite an active person and I enjoy the energy of being active. Um, I think sometimes I need to slow down a little more, but I, I think in our time, in our we have a very short lifespan really compared to the planet. I'm driven to do as much as I can in the time I have available to me. And, and at the moment people want to hear what I'm saying and they're interested in, in what I'm talking about. And I think there's a sense that everybody has their time and this is probably mine and a group of us, not just mine, um, but it belongs to a group of us who are real nature advocates. And I think um, if we can really put our energies into um, doing the things that we think are going to have the greatest impact. And for me, that's very much about building relationship. It's very much about empowering people around me, giving them the skills and the motivation, because then that leaves your legacy. And that legacy is the thing that I suppose I'm driven to do. So, of course, it's absolutely about impact for children and their time outside. But I think for me, I need to really connect to the adults so that they open the door. Yeah, and hearing in that statement that there is this acknowledgement of the finite, it's going to end eventually and it isn't just an end of a cycle. Does that come from your connection with nature and is that something that you transfers into the learning with children as well there is a mortality there is a cycle to this there is a cycle to it I think um, I for me we, we talked a lot about my uh, PhD last time and and a big part of that PhD is the exploration of the observable and the unobservable yeah. world and I think for me what that process of reading and thinking does is is it helps you define my place really on this planet um, and I suppose for me it's about the fact that I in in the the way I am at the moment have you know however many years left but maybe 80 who knows how old I'll be when I finally shuffle off but the the point for me is that I do believe that there is then um, the energy I give up at that point will become something else um, so I sit on this bridge if you like between the scientific world of quantum biology and the understanding of constant energy and about how systems work alongside this sense of spirit and this uh, unobservable framing. So um, I think for me, the, the cycles that you become aware of when you work with the natural world are about life and death. They are about um, everything has its moment um, and that what you need to do is to make the most of every moment um, that you're engaged with, really, um, and doing the things that you both love and feel passionate about. And the value in the unobservable is something I wanted to chat to you about today. Um, it comes up again and again in your work. And I think it's really valuable for our listeners to get your breakdown and clarity on the value of the unobservable. So how would you convey that to our listeners? I think the, the, the best way and what, what really started me on, off, on this whole journey really was, um, I think we spoke before about the fact that well, I was about 10 years old when my dad died and, and that was a massive traumatic event for me. It was completely out of the blue and at those times you had no counselling about mm. death or, or anything else. And so for me, my solace was to go for walks, was to go up this, what we call the hill, um, and on the hill was this massive oak tree. I can still see it now. And, and that's where I used to stop. So I'd sit there by the oak tree. And I think what's happening in those spaces is that you're aware of something. And, and I, I couldn't have told you that at 10 years old. Um, and there's this great writer called Caputo who talks about rifts and shifts in thinking. 
And what he says is that in your lifetime, in your journey through your life, there will be these moments that just make you stop and think, um, that make you make connections, if you like, to a bigger um, a bigger picture. And, and I'm not saying it's religion or spirit, but I'm saying it just helps you understand the pattern of your life. And so for me, that happened when I was um, at a lovely community, the rural community in Western Australia, um, and talking to people about um, those elders, talking about their beliefs and their sense of spirit. Um, and so you begin to then understand that, that we're not a separate species and we are all just human beings on this massive planet. But so I had all of that going on in my head. And then what happened was that I came back to Ochlone and started to really watch children. And when you really listen and tune into children, something happens when they go from a very built environment with the walls and the noise and the, the adult design out and into the wilder spaces, the natural world. There's a calmness that comes upon them. We see higher um, percentage of children who are happy to be silent. Um, they take um, just moments where they'll be out in the natural world. Um, and so I began to question, what is it that's happening here? Because we've done everything, you know, we've measured heart rates, we've, you know, looked at pedometers, we've, and all of that stuff is great and it's really good research. And we need it because it's, you know, it's allowed us to say, oh, the cardiovascular development will improve and this will improve. And, but those are measurables. And so they sit within what you call the Western paradigm of research, which is measurable. But the real essence of actually being with the natural world might not be measurable. It might be something that's altogether more ephemeral and actually is more about spirit and well-being and emotion. Well, how are you going to measure those aspects of it? So, so for me, I began to really drill down into what I meant. And um, it was very much about trying to open up a doorway into a conversation about the lives of children being affected by observable things and us in our observation talking about the observables. But there's also the understanding and acceptance that something exists that is unobservable. Um, and so, you know, you dip, you dip into this world of religion, which is full of contention. Um, and then you dip into the world of spirituality and, and you have to then try and unpack some of that. And so for me, I, I am now very comfortable with the fact that I embrace the observable and the unobservable world. I, I don't put my name to a religion. Um, I think there is something um, that is um, ephemeral, a phenomena that can't actually be listed or written down, but it happens in a moment between where a child almost touches or is in or truly with the natural world. And I think that's true for adults, but we've got so many layers to peel away now because we've built them up through our adulthood. But in children, there's this sense that, although it's situated and it's very complicated, it's not as, as simple as just touching a piece of grass, but, but I would suggest that there is something happening there, a two-way relationship between the child and the rest of the natural world. How do you embed that as, a part of the culture um, in your centre and through your educators, like because it is quite a big concept. But what is that? What's that step you take to open the door? Like, mm -hmm. I think it's. Um, I think there are several things. I think with any new development, what what you begin to see is people go to 
the easy achievable, which is let me buy this mud kitchen. So they go to because they, they think that's the answer is to buy the resource, right? And then they get the resource and then it's okay and children are playing in it, but then you begin to you begin to really realize that actually if I increase the complexity of it by changing up the muds and doing all this sort of stuff, oh that's great. It, we've taken another step. So everybody's on this journey, as I would call it. Um, into understanding how children really connect to and work with the natural world. And some people will stay at the point where I just want a mud kitchen and I want this. And, and so they, they objectify it, if you like. And then there are other people who realize that actually look at the fascination of that child holding those bits of mud. Look at his precision about how he's choosing which rock to hold. Look at the joy and absolute absorption in his face when he is studying the surface of a rock. So one of the things that you begin to do is to really slow it down, is to say, let's look at these ephemeral things like slowliness, mm. like silence. Um, the idea of just the sense of freedom, not only in your physical movement, but also in your mind. And so what you find is that people are um, unaware perhaps of, of some of the work I'm doing, but they're saying that, oh, we need to do some mindfulness. We need to do some, some sit, what, what Joseph Cornell used to call a sit spot, which basically means you sit out in the natural world. So they're, they're going towards all of this through the lens of emotional well-being and involvement, um, especially children with high anxiety, stress, things like that. Um, but I would argue those things are part of of, of something that we all need, not just those children who might be identifying with, with key behaviours. Um, so for me, how do you put it in your practice? Slowliness, um, just working in nature time, not working in a time that's set by human agenda, um, giving children more freedom to actually lead the, the direction of what you're doing so that you don't feel that the power balance is all sitting with the adult, but there's a much more equivalent a democratic conversation happening there mm. um yeah and the right of the child and to have a childhood and to have a voice is something that's very aspirational that's happening in scotland that's not really happening in australia um talking to people that i collaborate with about you coming on and kind of like we're going through a bit of a defeated stage right now with trying to get children's rights ac across the line and um, being in a culture that doesn't hear children. So how do you capture or just, a, just be able to honour children's rights in your service day to day? I think um, the, the, the biggest part, as you know, is, is for me is this right to be heard and I think if you centralise the right to be heard and the right to play, those are the two. And I'm very, very proud, actually, to be in Scotland because it is now part of Scottish law. Um, and one of the things about that ratification is that it then um, affects policy and everything else that we do. But there's these moments every day that you can do that actually help a child, child develop a sense of agency and a, cha a, a sense of empowerment, if you like. So... So for me, it starts off with uh, planning. Um, so when we're doing the floor books, when we're writing down children's ideas and theories, um, they're part of that. They're a co-author of the floor book. So that starts off your philosophy is that your adults and your children 
are working together. And one of the things about the child-led inquiry is that people think it's going to be chaos because they think, oh, well, I'll just do whatever the child wants to do. And actually, that's not how a conversational relationship happens. It's when you meet your partner, you don't say, actually, we'll just do everything you want to do now. The whole point of that democratic process is that you negotiate. Well, which bar are we going to go to? Well, I fancy this one. What do you fancy? So, so you take that, and that's the way that it works in that early years environment for me is sometimes it's the adult that's leading. Sometimes it's the child that's leading it, um, but better when they're both together. So you're co-constructing it. Yeah, that's great. So, great. It's a, mm-hmm. So it's, you mentioned children's rights and children's voice, and that's the instant dismissal every time. Oh, well, you just can't let them go free for all. You go, no, no, that's not where we're at. <laughs> And that's, that's, that's the challenge is that I think some people who are making decisions, who are putting the walls up that you're maybe meeting right now, have that perception. And so part of what we have to do within the, the Scottish frame here is that there's been huge amounts of campaigning around what does this actually look like? Um, and so for us, you know, day to day, going back to that question in our clone, it's, it is about, all right, so um they can't choose for example what snack they have because if they turn around and say well actually i'd like to have 400 sweets on tuesday what was the point in asking the question because if the child then replies you're not going to give them 400 sweets on tuesday because you're trying to do healthy eating so what we do is we frame conversations we frame those interactions and really consult children when we feel that we can actually respond to what it is they want to do so so much of the nature-based stuff fascinates me because, you know, people are producing so much stuff. I mean, you could go on the internet and find 50 bright ideas for outdoor play. They, they drive me a little mad because I'm like, okay, so who's made up the 50 bright ideas for outdoor play? Well, it wasn't the child. So straight away, we've gone to an adult agenda and people say, well, I haven't got any ideas. Well, actually, it's your job to consult children to gather what their theories are. So at the moment here, um, it's springtime. And so there's a huge fascination around birds' nests. So we put together this talking tub as we do and with various images and pictures of local birds and, and things for them to explore and test. And so anyway, as a result of that, they've decided that that birds' nests are brown because a bird doesn't have a choice about what kind of colors to buy. So they've devised this bird's nest shop um, with all these different materials. So they've got walls that we've got from the hedgerow, they've got bits of grasses, they've got bits of mud. So the things that they put into that frame have been chosen by children. And then um, we'll look in the autumn time when the, the nests have been abandoned, we'll look and find out the results of that. So, so that, you know, it wasn't that we sat down and said, oh, right, everybody, we're making a bird's nest shop. It was coming from children with a curiosity and a question to say, why are all these nests brown? They're really dull. And so from a child's lens, you take that moment and then follow that inquiry. So there's an awful lot around how do you create a rights-based agenda? That's one of them is to to really consider how far up the planning route does the child's voice go? So if you say, well, I sat down and consulted children um, and I asked them what they wanted to do and they said, oh, we want to make birds. And then you as the adult go off and get 50 templates for birds. Well, well, you've only asked them once that the point of consultation and that approach, that participation is that we have a continual conversation. Yeah. Um, 
so so that to me is the root of it all to be honest with you and then from there there is of course there's freedom there's autonomy but but again there are also times when we gather where it's actually going to be a conversation that an adult has thought of that they're thinking actually in order to progress this thinking it would be good if we could just focus on this for a minute and and i'm getting more concerned by by some approaches which are now suggesting that the adult has no place in that early years environment and i find that really interesting because i've always worked in areas of significant multiple deprivation so if i was always just to wait for children to give me what they want or what they could give me some of those children haven't had the luckiest start so if they haven't had the luckiest start how do i then widen their awareness of possibility how do I then enrich their world if I don't have a co-constructive model that means that I can come in and, and engage and play with them um, in that sort of, you know, uh, planning way? So it, it's a really interesting debate. And I think part of the reason why people are saying, oh, you know, the adults shouldn't get involved is because they know there's a lack of freedom, but they don't quite know how to do that. So if you look at the models like around the Bushkindy stuff, um, Doug and that group and you know very much let's go to the forest let's you know we're not taking anything with us we're just going to be free absolutely perfect but the time frame for that is maybe a day or a half day mm. whereas another model such as the nature kindergarten model you're outside from 8 30 till 6 every single day yeah. all day um, so so you then put some intent in there you do have some um, structure um, you do have some enrichment going on um, so it's about it's important that I think people are sensitive to the needs of children, the needs of family, the environment, the climate, all of that sort of stuff when they start to talk about the model of outdoor education they're going to do. And being confident as that guide, you know, you don't mm -hmm. have you, and, and put your hand up as the guide, not the authority. And um, my pet peeve is the Pinterest trap. Like, <laughs> I'll just Pinterest this. I'm like, no, don't intentional outcomes <laughs> we're there all day yeah. and it's there's yeah. a there's a very um blurry line between intentional teaching and intentional outcome which is absolutely um mm -hmm. and it comes to, uh, these things come from a place of love as well they have great intention but it's maybe just a bit lost in okay well i need to get this observation i need i'm mm -hmm. here for you i want you to experience these things but the mm -hmm. offset is we're putting our big adult hand into the cookie jar. There is. And, and I think sometimes, you know, that's the downside to technology. I mean, technology is fabby. I mean, look, you and I oh, chatting absolutely. on other sides of the world. And so there are magical things that happen through technology. But the downside is that on that phone, you are bombarded by the, the, the I suppose it's a bit like FOMO, isn't it? It's the fear of missing out. Mm. So, so you think, oh, there must be something else. I must be missing it. Surely the answer can't be within me. And I'm going, well, actually, the answer is absolutely always between in you, but it's also between you and the children you're working. That's where the answer lies. So you might get inspiration from Pinterest, but to take anything, whether it's a model of education or an idea from Pinterest and impose it onto children, for me, then means that, that you're not working in the rights of children at all. You're working with a slightly different agenda. So yeah. by all means, be inspired by it, but think very carefully before it becomes the driver for your work. Um, it feeds, that answer feeds beautifully into where I want to pick your brain on this. Um, your children designed your playground. 
So yeah. how did you how did you facilitate that within like workshopping getting feedback because it's so challenging just I find it even just posing the question about play to a child instantly sets them in a realm it instantly sets them off down this corridor and you go no plays actually and you can't articulate no plays this bigger thing but no all their awareness is is it's a slide and a trampoline and a swing and so how did you manage that and get past the adultifying of their voice well part of it the secret for me does lie in the talking tubs so so when you have a talking tub if you imagine you you as a landscape designer, you are aware that, you know, there's things like pattern, texture, color, mm. you know, all of those different elements of design. But when you're a child, you perhaps don't. So what you do is you, you get this talking tub and you say, all right, what can I put in here to represent pattern? All right, well, I'm gonna find um, patterns on a flower and take that photograph and put it in. I'm gonna find patterns on a pavement that I might think they could afford and I'll put that in. Um, so you take all this imagery that you've got, bring it together and then put that into the tub and then still thinking about the line of inquiry of pattern in the environment. Um, you would then maybe take a photograph of a child making patterns with loose parts and stones and sticks and leaves, put that in. Um, you always want to look at inclusivity. So you need to make sure that you've got a really good representation of the diversity um, of people. Um, so you're making sure that you've got maybe got a child who's got some walking support or a wheelchair um, that's in there too. And then you put the loose parts in. So then you might put leaves and sticks and a few bits of stone together. Now that's, that's just around one line of inquiry about pattern. Wow. The skill then comes is that when you've got multiple lines of inquiry, so it might be that the center you're working with wants to look at, I don't know, sand play as an exploration we would do a talking tub probably just on sand play yeah. and give them like you would do a mood board. You would not do a mood board. You would take the individual photographs. And that means when you get together and those children are all around you. Um, and then um, we use a big black mat because it's visually nice and plain and you can get about 13 children around it. So I use the mat for that reason, nice and easy to organize. And then the tub goes in the middle and we go in and we, children then take out objects in the tub. And what you're doing at that point as the adult is noticing engagement, you're noticing language, um, motivation, prior knowledge, you're doing all of that stuff. So if a child comes along and picks up a picture and they go, oh, see this, this is, I go to a park where they have this and I love it because um, when I spin around on this swing, all the patterns go whirly, 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 whirly. So straight away, you're writing down those ideas, you're writing down what they say. And then a child might say, well, actually, I like this picture um, that has got um, these pink flowers, they're beautiful, but I don't like this picture because it's got white flowers and I don't like white flowers. So you're just writing that down with the child's voice and then you're, as the adult, bringing together all of those desires, those motivations, and I think for children, it's so process-led play that they might say, oh, I like that bench. But your question as the adult is to be there in that moment and say, oh, I wonder what it is you love about the bench. And then for you as an adult, you're sitting there going, oh, yes, that's where I'm going to sit and have my morning tea. But for a child, it says, well, I love it because I can get underneath it. And actually, I reckon I could jump off that bench. 
So then you start to record movement. So you can say things like, actually, um, we need objects to jump off. Um, you know, John's really loving the idea of having a bench or, or a, you know, something like that that he can get underneath and on top of because they want to pretend they've got bunk beds. There's no way an adult designer is ever going to come up with the idea of bunk beds in an outside play area. But because children have the expertise of play, mm. we can write down those brilliant ideas and then integrate them into our plans, into our designs. And what would be your question of inquiry when they're all sitting around the mat, you put your talking tub in the middle and mm -hmm. just... So I would it frame it. I, I, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I do frame it. So yeah. I would say something along the lines of, well, we've got this amazing opportunity. As you all know, we're going to be changing our outdoor play area. Um, but it's really important to us that we know what it is that you love about this space. And they'll probably at that point start saying mm -hmm. to you, well, I love the tree and I love that old bit. And, and then, you know, then you can say, well, let's have a look in here and see if there's any ideas. Because that's all the talking tub is. It's a conversation framer, if you like. And so, you know, if you put in there 50 pictures of a climbing frame, <laughs> all right, well, you're going to get a climbing frame out, yeah. aren't you? So um, don't put the climbing frame in if that's not something you want. So it would be wrong and unethical, I think, to consult children about the design of a climbing frame if you, A, have no money, and B, have no intent of putting it in. Yeah. So far better to consult them about something you can actually achieve, like, Let's talk about the types of plants. What are the things we want to do? Well, I like making mud soup. What's in your mud soup? I need green leaves and I need red leaves and I need um, brown dirt and I need um, some pine cones. Okay, well, let's make sure we find out then. This is the list. I'm writing it down in the floor book. Let's write down these things. And I've written your name so that you know it's your ideas. Um, let's see if we can work out which plants are going to give us those things that you need to make your mud soup. That's, That's how we do it. Awesome. And some, what's some like little other scenarios where you would use that talking tub? Because it sounds awesome, and I think it's something that see people can listen to the to you chat about and go, "Yes, we're doing this." I. That's the whole thing about the 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 whole floor book thing. Actually, has four bits to it. Yeah. But most people only ever focus on the documentation in the floor book. So it has the communication book, which is where you're widening it out to the local community. Who is it that's, you know, parents coming in, outside agencies. And then you've got the family books, which are like your individual documentation for children, but they're very much family orientated. So examples, for example, like in the landscape designing we're talking about, you might say to parents, oh, if you go to the park or if you're out, could you take some photographs of your play space where you like to be at the weekend? Um, we want to make sure that we're including your ideas within our landscape design. That would go into a family book. So each child has their own family book. Yeah. And then yeah. there's the floor book and then there's the talking tub. So whenever, probably once a week at least, we're using the talking tub to do the conversation around the possibilities because that's what it is, it's possibility thinking. These are all the things on offer. These are all of our possibilities. Which bit of this do we feel that we want to investigate further? Um, because without that, it's like going to a restaurant and not having a menu. And so many people do that with children. And they say, well, I asked them what they wanted to do. And they didn't say anything. I said, well, but you, did you frame the conversation? Did you, did you help them understand the choices? And often people just look at me and go, well, no. Well, that's, that's maybe what's stopping that from happening. And so the talking tub opens up the conversation. So we use them in any subject. We have um, a talking tub all around spring because that's the time of year it is here. 
And we've got everything from a group of children who are fascinated by little catkins that grow here from the hazel trees. Mm. Um, we've got a group that are really fascinated by the idea of nests and nest building. So at the moment, they're making a massive giant nest for the whole nursery to get into. Um, so that's happening in the landscape at the moment. So all of these things, what you're doing is these are all your lines of inquiry. And so line of inquiry and construction of a nest, line of inquiry in terms of the beauty and aesthetic of the natural world. So there's an intent behind to talking to them. I use them all the time. So yeah, yeah, yeah. they're an and integral part. Of for our listeners that aren't familiar with a floor book, just as an overview. Yeah, sure. It's a podcast. large, um, <laughs> sure. It's um it's a large book um that's done on the floor. That's why it's called yeah. a floor book. Um, um and it really just documents with children um their theories, ideas, fascination. So it's very process-led. Yeah. It's done with children, um, but it's your documentation, which you can then analyze. And then at the back of the floor book is where you have your um the curriculum outcomes from the YLF or from yeah. whatever program you're using. So you can track back. You can say, actually, through this lovely child-led inquiry, we have been covering these outcomes as a group. Um, awesome. So it, um, yeah, it gives you that framing, if you like, the evidence that I and, think not just for outside agencies, but also for children to revisit. And um, where could I know you have some trainings and resources on floor books as well? Yeah. Yeah, that's all on the Academy website. So it's just um, mindstretchers.academy. Awesome. Um, so you can go on there and there's a whole series of free downloads called the inquiries, yep. which take case studies from all over the world now using it. Yeah, brilliant. Using the approach. And I'll yeah, put the always. links in the show notes as well. Super. I'm racking my brain and be like, oh, I'm going to do talking tub here and there and everywhere. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. Once you get into it, especially as a landscape designer, I think you know, the the idea of children being truly involved is always a, a fine line because we had, um, even down to the process at the end of doing the landscape where the children are doing the risk assessment. So the risk management often, you know, sits in the place of the adults. But when you take, for example, photographs of a landscape you've just made, and then you, you bring that back for children and say, right, okay, this is what you've now got. You've got to be a bit humble because they will tell you the truth about, well, we asked you for a spider's web and really you just gave us a rope. <laughs> not really getting that. So so you take that because you've yeah. opened up the conversation. Absolutely. So absorb that open criticism. Um, but it's lovely to then get the whole process from the initial ideas through the decision making right the way through to the children at the end, reviewing the installation, giving you the risk assessment. Um, and being part of that in one book. And that's what the floor books do. They show long-term evolution of thinking. Risk assessments by children. You've got to give me some notes on that. I think it's quite an interesting one, isn't it? That risk it often is. sits in the head of the adult. Mm. And I'm like, if you do a risk assessment and you don't involve the stakeholder, then actually what's the point of part of your risk assessment? It makes you feel good. But actually, if you hand the idea of not being safe as possible but safe enough into the head of the child then then actually you you're going to really empower them to make wise decisions so for us it's always you know um what what's the tricky here which is the hazards you know what's great about doing this of course that's the benefits and what are we going to have to think about um and that that's your procedures so you take those three elements and every time you're either dynamically outside with children just in the moment or whether it's a, it's doing um, 
a, a risk assessment of an object or an area of play, um, we always have a sheet that has the children's voices on it. Attached that it's to the big just main one. a constant practice of could fall into the realm of advocacy for supporting children. You're like, what's your voice? What's your voice? Mm -hmm. What's your voice? Mm -hmm. It's so good because yeah. um, I feel constantly and not constantly, but regularly that I have to be like, I have to be the person to speak up now because I've, like there's no one's thought of a child whatsoever. And a friend of mine, Hayano Mosa, he, um, he calls himself the childist because his, <laughs> his mission is just to make people think of children mm -hmm. and just mm -hmm. be constantly like, no, this is a part of it. And yeah, he's mm -hmm. doing amazing work. Um, for parents, educators who don't have access to a natural space. Um, and this is a question from Claire at Children of the Wilderness. She runs an amazing program. My daughter went there. So it's like a, um, it's a family daycare. But when the children get to their home base, they jump in the van and then they're off. They're off to the sea. They're off to the rock pools, the beach, the mountains, everywhere. And they're just exploring every single time they, they arrive. Um, so I asked her, I said, give me a question. She said, um, <laughs> for parents and educators who don't have access to nature space, how do we get them to value the outdoors and then inspire their children to value it too? Mm -hmm. I think that that hangs on your um, perception of what you mean by the outdoors. So mm -hmm. if I can take that back a step and say, right, okay, for me, the natural world is made up of the four elements of fire, earth, air, and water. So I look at the natural world and the presence and influence of the natural world inside my building outside in my outdoor landscape that I can then create and design with children. And then this sense of wild, which is this going beyond the gate to this bigger area, um, which is often still affected by people, but not so much. So in that scenario, what you're doing is looking at nature as something that is almost elemental. Mm. So my, my point is always to go to wherever parents are starting. So we can have a conversation about, oh, you know, where do you like to, uh, where do you like to sit on a, on a sunny day? And they'll say, oh, I like to sit on the deck. I'll sit outside with a glass of wine. Oh, great. So you enjoy just being outside. What is it you love about being out there? Oh, you know, it just kind of, it just feels good and it's fresh air and just makes you feel great. Okay, well, well, that's the air and, and the sunlight is giving you vitamin D. And then they'll say, yeah, and I'll say something like, and what's your daily routine? I say, oh, you know, I wake up, have a shower. All right, well, the shower really is just rain, but it's warm rain. So playing in that shower and having a refreshing shower is part of your daily routine. And that's exactly what children love. But, you know, they would prefer for it maybe to be something they can put their feet in. Do you like bath spas? Do you like that when you get a foot manicure? So, so what you're doing is saying water is the element, you know, sunshine is the element, the, the leaf. So when you look indoors, at many people's houses, they have, you know, the designer plant or they have the, the beautiful herbs growing on the windowsill. Well, that's, that's the plant kingdom. It's just that it's not presented in an outdoor play environment. So really, you could almost argue that the only difference between um, the natural world outside and inside is the expanse of it and the fact that you're under the sky. That's what outdoor play gives you. It gives you this vista this i'm under the sky here mm. so it's a really an interesting thing for me when i come to australia because 
a lot of people now are putting loads and loads of verandas and sunshades. I understand all of that. I understand the need for it, absolutely. But if you're a child and the only difference between inside and outside was the sky and you can't actually see the sky because it's been so covered in, um, what does that mean? What does that give us? And so there is a, a more unpredictable element. So we don't know when it's going to rain, but um, you have more stable weather over there than we do here. Um, so there's an unpredictability about being outside. You can control temperature inside. You can't control it out. So when people say to me, oh, we haven't got any nature, I'm like, well, actually, everywhere's got nature because, you know, you, you are nature. <laughs> you are nature, but but actually it's all around you. You know, the yeah. sunlight, the shadows, the, the, the small leaves. So when I was working in China, one of the things um, about and Singapore, actually, was that we were doing a whole workshop around the potential of leaves. And, and I knew what was going to come up. So I went to the supermarket and um, beautiful markets, absolutely fabulous. And um, so I just bought a load of vegetables, brought those in and we did the whole workshop just on vegetables because I knew the objection was going to be oh, poisonous, uh, dirty, it was good because that's their starting point. So if you take away that and get them to the point of fascination and joy and intrigue and curiosity, hopefully that then opens the door. So I think we can all do something is the answer to that. It's just yeah. finding that what that little tiny element looks like. And also what I hear there is like over like anticipating the objection. <laughs> Yeah, that's get, for me as a trainer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, and getting over that and giving them the maybe the the guidance once again to give them the materials to get over that blockage, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. um, you I touched on it there. Sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, I think there, you know, you can find people who are a little bit purist about mm -hmm. nature based work. And, um, you know, this is the only way. And I'm like, well, there are millions of ways of us doing this. So, so I think by, I suppose what I was trying to make really clear there is that we, there shouldn't be that um, sense of this is right and this is wrong. It should be much more about the relationship that we build as a human community that helps us it, in, in essence really start to grow and understand the, the relationship we have with the wider natural world. But you've got to have millions of different starting points for that to take place. And um, yeah. It's about being humble, I think, and just realizing that everybody's on a different point in that journey and we can all get there. We can all move forward, but we'll be doing it at different rates in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. And as it's gained traction and there's more people coming into nature play now um, in, in like more of a service provider type of realm. Yeah. It's something I've definitely observed. It's like, well, we do it the right way. Well, our standards are this and this. Um, but also just because you're right in your way doesn't make me wrong in my way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Constant having to overcome that. And I can be right and you wrong and that's okay as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mentioned there that you, I've heard you say it time and time again, um, you've got inside, outside and beyond to yeah. paraphrase you. But then what we're forgetting in the realm and something you mentioned, and it might feed back into the unmeasurable, is how do we honour the inside being internal of the child? Mm. And then, and yeah, then but I mean, beyond. 
Yeah, it, it has two meanings for me. Most people realize, you know, when I'm talking, it's always about location inside outside beyond its secondary meaning that came through in the thesis was inside as in self soul identity who we are as humans um so there's an awful lot of that internal not just for children but for adults and for the human race and then the the outside is our relation to the people around us and our relation to people around us is about community it's about um you know, if you're in a setting, it's about making connection to family and, and things like that. So in that sense, the outside is just our small bubble, if you like, that we're in. And then beyond is about us as a global society. And so your global society really is the thing that I was most fascinated by. And, and the International Association that you mentioned at the beginning, you know, the International Association of Nature Pedagogy was born because there were so many people coming in saying, oh, you know, we want to be part of a movement. And so, you know, we've really just limited it now to the Facebook group. Mm. Um, but that's lovely because it's self-sustaining. It's about, sometimes we'll put up just a stunning picture. So this morning I put up and shared um, a picture of a beautiful piece of film of a swan coming in through the mist. And it just as an adult gives you that sense of joy that that might be enough just to help you get through a moment today who knows the impact of it but but it's a meshwork and i think i keep talking about meshwork so people keep looking at me going oh you mean a network and i'm like no because a network has dots and and it has defined hubs whereas a meshwork comes from ingold's work really and and it's this whole thing i talked to you about last time about the mycelium and the underneath mushrooms yeah that has no beginning or end it has no single points in it it has just a coexistence in it and so for me that's what the international association is it's a meshwork so it's not led by me I, everybody shares stuff into it and so it has to be something that is owned by all because if it's owned by all it will continue if it's owned by one it will fail so that's been really fascinating. And we've used that same idea, same philosophy of meshwork within the virtual nature school, which has been the initiative we've done through the lockdown. Um, yeah, so I know it's it's accessible to all people. Now, the online nature school, if I might understand hmm. is correct. Um, and so what's it look like? Give us an overview of what an online nature school is, because I know there's those people out there going, you can't have online in a nature school. <laughs> but Claire Warden's about to prove you wrong. <laughs> uh, well, the, the, the first thing is that it, it's, um, it's interesting because the Virtual Nature School has a children's committee and it has a, um, a group of advisory people from all over the place and from Scotland because it was started here. And, um, and so the children will say to you things like, oh, I just, you know, um, I went off and I looked at that little film because we, what we do basically is every every um, week. So the children said they wanted to do various things. So they were with me at the time. So it was easy to do. They'd say thing, I want to do bones and big teeth. And you said, so all right, we'll do dinosaurs, but we're going to slow it down here. So we're going to really look at skin and we're going to look at how we gather evidence. And we're going to look at, you know, the skin coverings and we're going to look at feathers and, and so all of this sort of stuff. So we made films basically. So there are five films in every provocation um, you don't have to use the films um, you might decide you want to watch them yourself as an adult and then just take some of the concepts forward um, so it's a very flexible school in that sense um, and then 
um, what happens is that we devise this um, a new thing called um, an inquiry tracker, which essentially allows you to upload imagery like a floor book, but it's a digital floor book. You upload imagery into this meshwork of community of people all doing the same thing, um, all inspired by child-led inquiry. And then we operate like a professional Facebook group, but it's it's not as open and accessible as Facebook. But anyway, you come into that Floorbooks Club and, and so we then share all of that learning from it. So part of it is the lens of the child who is watching the films and just playing. And they're just starting points for children at home or, or for practitioners. Sometimes um, it's more about developing the pedagogical principles. And so the adults use, watch the films and then they come into the inquiry tracker and then we talk a little bit more. So it's a coaching tool, I suppose. So it has all these different threads to it. I mean, if you go to virtualnatureschool.org, that would be the best thing to do. And um, so it has this very much this children at home, children in setting and then practitioner focus. Um, So essentially in summary, it's, it's a series of films made with and um, yeah, for children, if you like, to to look at how we can create um, really exciting child-led inquiry, which is centered on the natural world. That's what it's all about. And you've had um, an uptake from the government as well because they've seen the benefit. Yeah, that was delightful. Yeah, so, so it came out of the pandemic and myself and a really good friend, Bravo, um, the nurseries were all shut and we went into immediate lockdown and and Bravo phoned me up and he said, you know, how are you doing? And I'm like, I feel disempowered. I feel helpless. So I need to do something because that's the way I cope with it. Um, so I said, what could we do? So at that point, it started where I would sit and meet children at 10 o'clock every morning. We would watch one of the films. They would either tell me it was rubbish, tell me it was good, or tell me what they were going to do. Um, you know, and that's the point, isn't it? If someone says, do you want this? And you go, well, no, I don't want it, but I want this. Then great, okay, decision made. And then we would go away and play um, and I would meet them over lunch. So we would eat lunch together because um, that's the time when most of them were sedentary. So I would get my food, they'd get theirs. We'd sit together with their families. And so um, that got so popular, I was pretty much doing it every single day. And um, so it was fabulous during the first lockdown, actually. And those children then... Um, we had children in a hub because we'd opened as emergency care. Um, so they would engage with the children online. So it's been totally phenomenal. And I think when you when you look at this idea of the devolved leadership, which is where you're really giving agency to people around you, including children and families, then what happens is that magical things come out of it. So out of the virtual nature school at the moment, um, there's a group of children who are now making films on uh, Makaton signing of nature. We've got a group who are um, talking in Gaelic. So they're now doing a whole series of Gaelic films, all made and designed by children. Um, So yeah, I'm very proud of it. Yeah, very proud of it. I like what you said earlier about the possibility thinking. Mm. Can you just unpack that a little bit for me? Just because I love it. um, So one of the things I need to acknowledge is is possibility thinking really came from Anna Craft, sadly not with us anymore. And um, I think it's really important to acknowledge where we get these ideas from because, yeah, that's just the way we should all be doing it. Um, And so um, Anna Craft's work was around almost philosophical thinking. And she was trying to really support people to look at this idea of, 
children having the awareness of possibility as opposed to the idea that you know you can do this or this so so she did lots of work around the wondering question so i wonder how i wonder if uh, what if you know what if the the sky was yellow um what if the all the flowers in the world were black so she would really push out some of that philosophical ideas for me I suppose it resonated with my work because I am a divergent thinker and that means I'm both in my own world I suppose I'm a what, do you, what was I called the other day an educational entrepreneur um so I mean that my own thinking is that I am very divergent yeah I also believe that children should be given divergence not convergence and that's one of the issues I think we have is that constantly children are being pushed to, to think in the same way as everybody else whereas actually I believe more individuality and about although you're an individual you're part of a wider community of learning but you're still an individual with your own thoughts and ideas mm. and so Anna Kraft's work about okay let's think about possibilities here not not about definitions and about you know set outcomes um, so in my work it's I suppose had already been shown through the fact that we don't write about next steps for learning, I always write possible lines of development. Mm. So for me, you know, when you say in your planning, you're going to do next steps. I'm like, how do you know it's my next step? I might have changed my mind tomorrow. So for me, there's always got to be that world, that word of it's the possible line of development. It's where we hope to go next in our planning. Um, but if it rains tomorrow, then we're jumping in puddles. We're not going to be doing what we thought we were doing. Yeah. So yeah, that's where it comes from. Mm. And linked in with honoring the possibility and possibility thinking is also honoring time and freedom. So what's your techniques in honoring that in children, in childhood? I think it's about um, understanding the pace of time. And um, I recently had a, a bit of a health scare. And I think what happens when you go through something like that is that it it is another one of those Caputo moments. It, it's that moment when you go, holy moly, this, you know, we've really got to think about every moment. And so one of the, the things that we do is we talk about slowliness, as I talked about earlier on. Um, I, one of the books I wrote called Nurture Through Nature was the book I wrote after watching Emily, who was only two at the time. 16 now um but she was two at the time and i i watched her because i wasn't working and i was with her and her her fascination with you know the raindrop that just was dripping and the the flower blossoms that came out on this tree helped you realize that actually slowing it all down to nature time is a really good healthy thing to do because it means that we're not rushing through life, but that we're savoring every moment. And so you'll have seen, if you've seen the virtual nature school stuff, the stuff we send out for parents literally says, uh, take a moment, um, it lasts a lifetime. Because um, what we wanted people to really do was just, you know, not make a you know, massive change to their lives, but the next time their child's looking at a dandelion or you know, the next time their young child wants to put a foot in a puddle, take the moment because if you don't take that moment, then you're, you you lose all of that. I think it was Jason Donovan that says you don't, uh, or one of his songs, um, you don't realise how important a moment is until it becomes a memory. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, crack on. That's like that's exactly it. So so not thinking there's a bigger thing to be done, you know, like oh we're going to go and do this 
we're going to study the whole of the animal kingdom in a week. And I'm like, no, let's just look at feathers. Let's let's just yeah. look at something small, but do it really well and enjoy the moments together. Yeah, one of the something I reflect on quite a bit in watching children and how they're experiencing the world now is thinking, what are the memories that so many children are going to be looking back on that represent their childhood? And it it really frightens me. Mm, I think um, one of my hopes is that I was having a conversation with somebody about pigs recently (laughs) and, um, and Peppa Pig, um, came up and and I don't know if you've got Peppa Pig but Peppa Pig is everywhere and I just thought you know I wonder if in your childhood you will have the chance to see a pig for real um will your distortion of the natural world actually be an extension of what you've seen on that screen which is Peppa Pig which is two-dimensional very flat flat very very plain but I mean so you think um I I I believe that the one good thing that's come out of this pandemic in this country, and I can't answer for everywhere, has been the fact that I am seeing more and more children outside um, because that is the place where parents have felt that they are safer. You know, they've got to the point where the four walls have just been too much. So we're seeing people going into parks. I think one of the challenges for us is to make sure that it doesn't dissipate that it doesn't just go back into being um, just a trend. Um, I need to get it now um, really embedded in people's understanding and about actually, we need to be more sustainable. We need to understand this is the planet that we're on and and how vulnerable we are. And let's face it, you know, we were reminded of that by something as small as a virus. So, So actually I think it's brought a humility to people, to humans which is a good thing if we can just get them to remember it. Yeah. I love the framing of um, this virus has made people reflect on what they need, not what they want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I heard through the grapevine that you received a letter from David Attenborough. So being a fanboy of David Attenborough, I've got to know the details. So, um, you know, what's what's really lovely is that I think for me, he's always been my hero. I grew up watching films of David Attenborough. I'm sure he had an influence in terms of my love of the natural world. And, and I think for somebody who has always been an advocate for the natural world, he brought it into the lives of so many children. Yeah. And um, I'd finished my PhD and... Um, a friend had said to me, you should send that to David Attenborough. And I was like, no, what, you know, no, he's way too important to read my PhD. Why would he be interested in what little old me has written about my philosophies and blah, blah, blah. And so you sit there, don't you? And sometimes you've just got to be a bit brave and um, it's the most nerve wracking thing. I mean, I've spoken in front of three, 4,000 people and I was more scared sending him my PhD thesis. And, um, so I sent it off and someone said, just send it and see what happens, Claire, take the risk. So I did, and I forgot all about it really, to be honest, and got on with life. And then one day this letter came, it was an envelope and um, it was a recycled envelope with a label over the top, um, beautifully handwritten. And um, I opened it up and there was this letter from David, um, handwritten in the way that he does, 
just saying thank you so much and how much he'd enjoyed it and um, how he was honoured that I, he'd had any influence in my life um, and urging me to keep going and saying, you know, what a great job I was doing. So I just felt over the moon. I was personally, I was absolutely in floods of tears because when you get that letter from somebody who you have just idolised, I suppose, mm. all your life from when you were a young, young girl, and then they bother to take the time to write to you, handwritten letter. I thought, I know, the most you're going to get is an email. No, handwritten letter. Um, so now it's framed on the other side of the room where I'm currently speaking from. And in those moments when you're sitting there going, I'm too tired, yeah. you know, I'm fed up, I can't do this anymore. I look up and I see his letter. And so yeah. that's the thing that keeps me going. Yeah. So I don't know if he realizes that that's the impact he's had yeah. on me, but um, through my life, I think, you know, I'd like to think that I'm doing the same for other people, giving them some form Definitely. of inspiration and helping them feel a sense of agency. Um, so yeah, he's definitely, he's the person that um, is my one. Mm. Um, and for people that are starting out their journey, they're not at the level of getting a handwritten letter from David Attenborough yet, <laughs> but they're just starting out. Um, what bit of advice would you give those people that are just starting out in this journey and supporting children in nature? To believe that no matter how disempowered you feel at times, every single action you make has a ripple effect. So whether it's the fact that, you know, you're in a, an environment where there's just you and, you know, 20 children, and you think, well, I'm not going to have a big effect here, putting your energies into those children will become those moments that will become those memories that, you know, when they're talking to their parents or they're talking to their extended family, or even when they're grown-ups, they would think back to a moment where they had a sense of muscle memory, maybe, or a, um, just a deep-held uh, emotional memory of something that you did with them. So I think I'm a great believer in the fact that if you, if you make that little ripple, um, that actually, and put your energy into things that you can actually control and influence, gradually that zone of influence gets bigger and bigger yeah. and and the more energy you put into it then the things that that maybe seem too big to even challenge that are zoned that's sort of the zone of concern yeah. those things gradually become affected by it and so yeah i would say just believing in yourself that every action you take has an impact well, I can assure you that you are motivating. You are inspiring so many people from around the world, including myself. Um, oh, thank you. So, 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 so much um, from all realms. So like I chat to you and be like, I can be a better dad and also to give myself a break and also by playground designer and do this and this and this. So thank you so much for joining us again on Play It Forward. It's an absolute honor. I can't wait to talk to you again and go for the hat trick. And absolutely. Um, yeah. And I'll put everything we chatted about today, including floor books, thinking tubs. I can't wait to share that with so many people. So thank you so much for joining us again, Claire. You're no a problem. legend. <laughs> thank you so much for the invitation. Chat anytime. Take care now. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for another Play It Forward Worthy podcast. What an informative and impactful talk we had. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, 
all of the things we spoke about, the books, the websites will be in the show notes. So I look forward to you joining us again soon on a Play It Forward Worthy podcast.